Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 151 for July 3rd, 2008, Frack and Form. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now, our one, our sesquicentennial episode. Steve Gibson is here from Irvine, California. Are we sesquicentennial plus one? Is this 151? You're right. Sesquicentennial was last week. So. You're right. What when I what when I thinking? Well, in but you know it's that old you know when does the year two thousand begin thing, right? Uh, I hate that that zero or one. Yeah. We, are we counting from zero or <laughs> counting from one? Well, we counted from one, so I guess we can say it's this is our and second. As a, as a, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's our second sesquicentennial of of of. <laughs> I don't know. Well, this is a big one too. Uh, there's been a huge amount of interest about. Our promise this week to discuss the technology, the horrifying technology, which is being used by the form, P-H-O-R-M system, essentially to spy on on ISP customers without them, without their knowledge, unless they're they're clued into what's going on. So, um, you know, we, we opened the topic two weeks ago discussing this whole notion of the betrayal of ISP trust, which is beginning to happen. Um, and so let's. We're, so this week, our main topic is to talk about all of the, the the specific details of what form is doing in order to achieve long term profiling of ISP customers. These are these are advertising platforms, we should, or at least they build themselves as advertising platforms, not as spy platforms. We should just mention that. Actually, I got an, an email and I sent it along to you from the folks at Front Porch who said, we'd like to, you know, talk about what we do. We, we you know, do you, do you, at some point, I guess we can give them a chance to, to explain it. I don't know. Oh, I'd, I'd like to very much. In fact, uh, we've, you also sent one and another guy contacted me through GRC and on the news groups right. who's been very active in the UK in anti-form stuff. And uh, so we're going to have him on the podcast in two weeks to talk about sort of the political and regulatory. And I mean, he's really been in the fray. And of course, you know, form is uh, the, the one of the sites that we'll talk about is registered in New York and they have corporate offices in New York. So despite the fact that they've also got a presence in the UK, you know, they're very much planning to attack the US much as they have already um been very active, too active, everyone would believe over in the UK. Well, and an update on uh, on our conversation here and that's some really good news. Uh, at least I think so. Charter has announced that they're not going to do the go forward with the Nebuad program that they were talking about. Yep, and Nebuad is uh, is a different approach to achieving the same sort of concept. You know, it's the same sort of ISP installed equipment, and uh, and Nebuad. Well, it's it's hard to say one is worse than the other from a technology standpoint. Um, they do inject JavaScript into 
the pages that ISP customers download, which is what Form was trying to do a couple of years ago in 06 and 07. That was the early approach that Form was taking. It They messed that up so badly <laughs> that they backed off from that approach. Right, so right. anyway, we'll go over all that today. So so I'm glad you're, I'm glad you, you're kind of lifted, pried this rock up and you're some shining some light in here because clearly the spiders are moving. Well, and you know, it's, it's the sort of feeling like do you, like when I download software now or go to a website, often now I'm, in, I'm confronted with an interception page that is showing me something full screen. And then up in the top, it says, if you'd like to bypass this ad, click here. Yeah. And it's like, I hate yes, that. I want to bypass this bypass It's so this funny ad. that they give you that option. Who would, who, I mean, <laughs> why did, of course you don't want to watch it. And, and so my, my, my point is that we began with, with you know, less annoying ads then we went to flash where they've got you know dancing fish prancing around the screen and now now we've got interception pages and so my concern is that if we allow isps to give third parties a foothold in their facility if if they have the ability to start intercepting our traffic and and that becomes acceptable then what's next i mean you could easily imagine email filtering follows on it's like oh well we're just doing we're not reading your email we're just doing a keyword scan to determine kind of what kind of categories you fall into and then when you go on the web um we'll you know we'll be able to deliver more targeted advertising so i mean my 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 point is i guess that i think the sense is this ought to be nipped in the bud and stopped immediately before it goes any further yeah I mean, well, we look, got a we, whole bunch of other stuff to talk about. Yes, we are. I mean, OK, well, let's I'll tell you what. <laughs> I know there's so many things I want to say. Uh, let's get to um, uh, some of the uh, top security stories. And uh, we also have some updates, I'm sure, from the week past. Yep. Uh, and then we can get to uh, the, the main topic, which is forms. And then at that point, maybe I'll talk a little bit more because I, I want to say, I, you know, we're advertising supported. I don't think advertising is necessarily bad, but I think that there are ways to do it that are acceptable. And I think there are some philosophical issues here as well as some security and privacy issues. Yeah, and here I am wanting to follow up and, <laughs> and continue talking about this. For example, um, websites are just not that expensive to put up. Right. I mean, and so there was all this early nonsense about, oh, well, if it weren't for the ads, we wouldn't have the web. It's like, yes, we would. We had the web before we had advertising. So it's not, well, not I mean, only that, there are um, like a million Web 2.0 sites that are fairly expensive that are, aren't doing any advertising. So you don't obviously the ads aren't necessary yet. I don't I don't uh, uh, diss anybody's right to make a living doing what they're doing. And look, the ads are necessary for what we do. We spend more than a quarter million dollars a year now on producing content. So we have to have some revenue come back uh, right. for Twitter. And, and, and so for, and so, for example, I think what's happened is popular websites have, have said, Oh, let's just do a little experiment here and see what kind of revenue we can generate. Right. And when they actually start generating cash from visitors who are being who are uh, encountering their ads, then they think, "Wow, you know, this doesn't just have to be a black hole for th- that our money all goes into. It can it can support itself." Right. Which I mean, which is a good thing. Although, again, you know, this this notion of going to a blocking page presenting you with you know not the url you clicked on that and then you have to crazy. do something in order yeah. to bypass it it's like oh, okay that's you know 
again, it's becoming. I'll tell you what I think about all that in a second. But let's let's talk right now about what's okay. been going on in the world of security, because there are a few important security bulletins. I'm sure people want to hear. Yes, um, I noted that a copy of Acrobat that I had installed on one of my machines updated itself since we last spoke. How could you tell? Uh, it's updating itself every five seconds, yeah. it seems like. Yeah, well, I mean, Adobe's really in the middle of of security nightmare land yeah. at this point. They've got another JavaScript parsing vulnerability, which is being exploited in the wild. There are some situations where, without any user interaction, a a, a PDF document will display itself. If that were a malicious PDF document, which... Is there such a thing? Oh, yeah. Which yeah. this vulnerability now is is again closing. I mean, th- there are there are an, a continuing series of these JavaScript parsing bugs in Acrobat that are being uncovered and are quickly being exploited. So I did want to let people know if they've got Acrobat and they use it a lot, they may want to and they don't have like automatic updates and checks and so forth verified. It's worth going into the toolbar and saying check for update and make sure that you have updated yourself recently because there is this is in the wild. It's being exploited again. You know, it's not like it's going to be a, a huge problem, but people listen to security now because they want to know about this stuff. So there is one. Also, um, the Safari version, the the the, the Safari for Windows mm-hmm. has a number of vulnerabilities that Apple has just recently patched. Two of them are remote code execution vulnerabilities. So that's definitely worth updating also for any people who, for some reason, are running Safari under Windows. There's a, um, Apple updated its own operating system, OS 10, with a fairly major update. At least that's judging by the way they number these. 10.5.4 came out yesterday. But, of course, yep. uh, I haven't seen exactly what they patched, but I'm sure there's some security patches on that. No doubt a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, how we, we were talking sort of anecdotally a week or two ago, um, wondering about Microsoft, the effectiveness and value of Microsoft's uh, software removal tool, uh, which they're constantly updating, as, as we said. Um, you know, certainly every second Tuesday of the month, we get a new version of the malicious software removal tool. There was an interesting t- statistic that was revealed by Microsoft. Um, 330 million copies of the malicious software removal tool were downloaded in June, and it was updated to remove a particularly pernicious game password stealing malware, and it encountered two encountered and removed two million copies. Of this game password stealing software on Windows machines. This is a big business in Asia in particular. These uh, online games uh, are are big business, and uh, these I've seen there have been a lot of security flaws or or viruses trying to take advantage of this uh, fact and stealing game passwords. You would think who cares, right? Well, of course, the, the the reason is is that now games have become such a big deal that if someone gets your username and password and logs on as you, they're able to. They're able to steal the resources and sell them for cash. I mean, right. they can turn them into money. Right. So, right. And, and as a matter of fact, you, you mentioned Asia. It is the case that more than half of these um, uh, instances of malware were found at Chinese IP addresses. Yeah. So there does seem yeah. to be a real concentration of that um, over in China. I think they're worth more in China, I guess. <laughs> um, I updated uh, Wismo. 
my oh. little wacky Windows gizmo okay. with two new commands. I don't know. I was just in the mood uh, late last week. I got another piece of email that my tech support guy, Greg, forwarded to me with a Wismo person saying, please, 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 could you just give me a, a, a command for locking my computer? I mean, locking a computer, a Windows machine is not hard. You do Control-Alt-Delete, and then, and then you choose lock. Right. Um, but it's the most requested new feature in Wismo. <laughs> so it's like, okay, fine. I give up. I'm, we're putting lock in. And then I tried combining it with mon-off, which turns off the monitor. And that's sort of, you can do it that way. Say, Wismo space lock space mon-off. And then you set that up as a shortcut on your, for example, down in your um, uh toolbar and you just do a click one it. click yeah and so and anyway but it doesn't work as well as it could so i did a second command called blind lock b-l-i-n-d-l-o-c-k and then you know wismo you can find at grc.com um just on under our main menu uh in freeware uh or also grc.com slash freeware um and blind lock locks the system and then powers off all the monitors and keeps them off so you you so it looks like the system you know you're, you're not getting any clues you can't see the username which you otherwise can see if you just use the lock command or if you just lock the system so you can't see that and of course it's dangerous if you fumble around with a keyboard so you want to practice first just using the the, the lock command um, and also alt u and alt p are shortcuts to the username and password field. So you can use those if you, you know, to recover from a typo when you are not able to see what you're doing. But anyway, I know that it is the most requested feature. And so I thought, okay, what the hell? We'll just, you know, I'll add that. And so now Wismo has it. A lot of people uh, uh, love Wismo. It's free. You can get it from grc.com. I didn't realize you were still getting so many feature requests. How long has Wismo's been around for years? Yeah, it has been. Uh, it's really neat. I got my first SGI monitors and they had. They had the ability to power down, and I thought, "Hey, that's cool. I wanted. I, I don't. I didn't. I didn't use a screensaver, but I always know when I'm getting up from my machine for some length of time. I'm not someone who continually power cycles his computer, so the machine was going to stay on, but I wanted the monitors to to like you know turn off when I right. wanted them to turn right. off. And so I just I, that was the genesis for Wismo. Is it a, uh, a BIOS call that it makes, or is it a bunch of different stuff you're doing, or? Uh, it just, it's in the Windows API. There's like the whole power control API that allows you to manipulate Windows power. But you've state. expanded it much beyond power. I mean, it does other stuff too, right? Oh, it's got the graviton <laughs> screensaver. That's got you know where all the equally gravitationally mutually attracted little white balls do all kinds of cool things. <laughs> and so. it's got it's got that uh, new zero uh, wireless zero config fix, which is good. So, right for for turning off the wireless zero config which yeah. is it's amazing to me that windows will install on a machine that has never seen a wi-fi adapter isn't that silly it'll, ha it'll have that service yeah. running just, just in like, case oh. i guess you, suddenly you get a wi-fi adapter yeah so how could people send you suggestions because already i'm seeing in the stick amp chat room like four different things they want you to make ah! wismo do uh, uh, grc.com slash feedback is the is <laughs> okay. the all-purpose feedback catch-all for for security now input grc.com slash feedback. Uh, also, there are a new version of Jungle Disk. I was saw released. that. I just downloaded it. What's new in there? Uh, oh, I mean, it's got so many new things, I can't even enumerate them. And frankly, I haven't gone yet to take the trouble to download it. It is a free upgrade for everybody who has version 1. whatever it is. Uh, this is version 2.0. And there is also a new 
a new groupware version of Jungle Disk, which is specifically designed for allowing people, allowing multiple Jungle Disks to be logged into the same remote Amazon located bucket and be able to share files. So they've solved, you know, he's basically created the ability to have um, shared a, a shared directory essentially uh, through Jungle Disk. One of the features that I know that it has is you're able to you're able to simultaneously a- access multiple buckets, which is the the term he and Amazon use for like you know the 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 equivalent of a directory essentially. Right. right. So, but it's got a ton of new features, a whole bunch of backup. Um, he increased the the number of things that that the the built in backup facility could do because he basically he's been listening to users. Uh, and doing what they wanted to. Yeah, I like you the know, backup it, now it, has an interface it, right on the window. The the so that it's very easy to start the backup, pause the backup. You have much more control over it now. Right. Yeah. Jungle, also, that's Jungle Disk, by the way, which we've talked about before. But just, if you don't know about it, it, it's an interface to Amazon's uh, S3 storage, and it's not free, but it's, it really adds to the it enhances the value of S3 immensely, and it's cheap. It's is it JungleDisk.com? I think it is. Yeah, and yeah. it's very inexpensive. Oh, I mean, it's great. Less twenty than bucks. Twenty bucks. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. What else? Oh, also, um, your big twit episode on Sunday. You know, um, I first of all, I want to apologize. We, <laughs> what was I thinking? You know, we're, we're getting old timers on, and we tried we tried very hard to get David Bennell, who would have been great. Yeah. Uh, it, what it, what it ended up being is old timers in the computer magazine industry who had known Bill Gates because we were talking about Bill Gates. His last day was uh, last Friday, and why I didn't think of getting you on, Steve, is just beyond me. I'm sure you have many stories to tell about Bill Gates. Well, yeah, uh, I, I, I love apologize. the episode. I, I, I would recommend to all Security Now listeners, if there are any who are not listening to Twit, this it was a it was a Thank great you. podcast. You know, it's I so really funny because I never know. I I I was so nervous about doing it because it isn't you know Twit's normally a news podcast. Sure, that's the big story of the day. But we didn't cover any other stories. It was a bunch of old guys, you know, people your age and my age, Steve. And I thought, oh, you know, this is not going to be. Po-. And it, I got I've received nothing but positive oh no kidding i'm really glad to hear that i i thought i was just it was fun i mean you know gates is a uh, well he's the richest man in the world and he's but for all of the people listening to this who are involved in pcs and computers obviously i mean you know he matters he's a big deal he matters more than almost any i can't think anybody who matters more well okay my problem with bill is that when we get together we tend to argue <laughs> and why and am I not surprised? Why am I not in the least bit surprised? <laughs> I, I I have the utmost respect for him, and I, but I recognize that he is fundamentally a brilliant businessman. And while you know he once created a company called Trafo Data to process you know traffic, the, the punch tape that the old traffic uh, uh, um, measuring equipment produced when he was and, 15 i might add or 14 right. yeah and uh and and then you know no one's really clear what involvement in coding bill had but i recognize that his his genius his brilliance is that of a businessman oh yeah and so what happens is the the trouble i get into with him is he says something which he wants to be true because it's important to Microsoft's interest that it be true, but it's not. And most people, you know, aren't sure if it's true or not, but I am. And so I call him on. <laughs> you stand up to him. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So this, the, the, the one most memorable event, <laughs> and it's funny too, because as I was listening to the, the, you know, the, the, the Twit podcast, I was thinking, oh, shoot. I mean, I'm sure that Dvorak and um, uh, Bill McCrone, Jerry Purnell. M- Yep, Macron and Purnell yeah. were all present for this oh, because boy. this was very public. Oh boy! Um, this was the announcement of the Pentium, mm-hmm. and there was one. You know, the the, the big annual conference uh, for the computer industry is Comdex. Right. That you know, I was always going to. Sure. Uh, at the time, I was in the middle of somewhere along the the my eight years of writing my weekly column in InfoWorld magazine called Tech Talk. Um, which, because I really gave it a lot of time and attention, um, you know, ended up being a very, very strong component of InfoWorld. You know, oh, yeah. uh, there was the Cringely column, and Cringely and I were vying for first place among all the different assets in right. in in that News Weekly. Um, and sometimes he would be he would pull out in first, and sometimes I would. But right. you know, so the what I said mattered, and in fact, I was largely credited with launching Visual Basic. Because the gal from Microsoft, Nevit Basker, who was the original product manager for Visual Basic, came down, paid me a visit, and showed me VB10, and I was like, "Oh my God, everything! This changes everything." Mm-hmm. And it's funny because one of my programmers said, "This is really a bad idea," and I said, "Why?" And he says, "This makes it too easy to program." <laughs> you might have been right. <laughs> that might be the real problem. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I, I'd established my creds. And and this was the year that that the Las Vegas uh, Convention Center was being remodeled. So Comdex was at McCormick Place in Chicago that year. I remember that. I was at that Comdex. Yeah. 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 And uh, and so the the big deal of the of of, at the time was Intel's release of the Pentium. You know, we had the 286, the 386, the 486. And, you know, and. It's like, okay, at Comdex, Intel is announcing this new processor. So so the entire industry, the entire press community, that's why I'm sure that that, that John and, and Bill McCrone and, and, and Pornell were all there. In fact, I remember partying uh, with um, Jerry. Uh, his, uh, he's got a, a neat wife. Roberta is a great hugger. Mm, I've so, never met Roberta. Uh, oh. We always hug whenever oh, we're together. Oh, oh, Jerry just sort of looks at me thinking, oh, okay. <laughs> anyway. Here comes that Gibson just, again. We're a t- hug. T- t- tighten your string tie, Jerry. <laughs> um, so so um, the, the whole press community is there. We start off, and this is the night in, a, in the large auditorium at McCormick Place. And we start off with Intel's presentation of the new radically different and improved Pentium architecture. And, and there are a number, you know, I'm glued to this because I want to be writing. I'm thinking this will be good for three or four columns. I want to explain, you know, what Intel is doing with this new architecture. So one of the things they explain is that this thing has, and this was the first chip, I believe with on chip cache, the not, no prior processors had, had major on chip cache. But what was happening was the clock speeds of the processors were was moving ahead of the speed of dynamic RAM. So there was a greater and greater disparity. So that so that so that the Pentium maybe may, it must it must there must have been some little like level one cache, but no big like level two cache. So that was a big deal. 
and the, and Intel, t- the, the buzzword at the time also was still RISC, R-I-S-C. Oh, reduced, and what a, yeah. Reduced instruction set. That, that was the battle because Macs were running on a, quote, RISC chip and everybody's saying, well, can you get more complex with CISC? Can, who's going to win, RISC or CISC? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, of course, MIPS was the big RISC uh, producer at right. the time. Right. And so, so Intel, of course... I mean, as an assembly language programmer, I've been programming the Intel chip for years, and I knew just how complex the instruction set was. I mean, I'm still sometimes picking up my little reference book and going, okay, wait a minute, is carry set on this kind of instruction or not? I mean, it's incredibly complicated, uh, as opposed to being a, a long instruction word, which is much simpler and, and, and flatter. But Intel wanted to have risk. Because oh that's it was a buzzword. So they said oh we've we've re-engineered our our processor from scratch. This is a RISC core with an with an emulation wrapper which runs at very high speed. So it's it's still runs the the relatively horrible Intel instruction set, um, but it does it much faster. And we've profiled all this code out there and. For the first time, thanks to this RISC core, many of the instructions, which are used more often, now execute in a single cycle. And that was new. You know, the idea of one cycle instructions back, back in the, the 286, 386, 486, these things were so heavily microcoded, meaning that there was actually a ROM on the chip, and the chip was but basically emulating the Intel instruction set, which is called microcode, because the instruction set was so complicated, you just couldn't do this in hardware. You had to sort of make a computer within a computer in order to execute this instruction set. So, 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 okay, so we got, you know, a whole bunch of instructions are now able to execute in a single cycle. We've got a big on-chip cache for the first time. So as long as the, all of the data for the instruction is in the cache, that's part of the requirement for a single cycle execution. So it meant that the the benefit of executing from the cache would be much better, and the penalty for a so-called cache miss, where you had to go out and pull pull that data from the increasingly slow seeming dynamic RAM, that penalty was much greater. Right. So I mean, so okay, I, I I absorb all this, and so and we. And, no, I just want to say something real quickly before you get to your your point. This was the beginning of a very bad road for Intel, which ultimately bit them. But go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously, this was the, this was kind of some of the problems that they ended up having uh, was this penalty for backing up. Oh, well, exactly. Well, yeah. and, 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 and the problem is that the, the instruction set that they were moving forward over time for the sake of upward compatibility, it was... It was really hard to make it faster. They had parallel execution yeah. pipelines yeah. Yeah. and spec- speculative processing where, you know, instead of you, you, in, in computer jargon, you come to a branch and you either take it or you don't. So they would do both. They, they would take it and not take it right. and like split the execution stream. Right. And they were they were trying to execute ahead of the code so that by the time the code got there, <laughs> then they would know what path to take. I mean, it's just it's bizarre how I mean, like what effort they had to go to to continue making this system faster and faster. So after the presentation, the, the, the hall lights come up in the auditorium and we're going to have a panel 
Now, the panel members were Philippe Kahn, Bill Gates, Fred Gibbons, and Jim Manzi. Now, we should um, probably, because there's a lot of, of people course, too of young to know any of those names, okay, which so, were legend so, and, well, in the industry and, then, of course. And, and yeah, I mean, these were like the guys in the PC industry. And the moderator was someone I knew, Stuart Alsop. Yeah. Uh, Stu Great wrote guy. PC Letter for years. Yeah. He was, uh, for a while, he was the editor-in-chief at InfoWorld, in fact. Um, but a little side so, trivia. Stuart Alsop, John C. Dvorak, Fred Davis, Gina Smith, and I did the first pilot TV show for CNET, a show I produced. And oh, very Stuart cool. was a, it was a great roundtable. It was basically the precursor of Twit and Silicon Spin and a bunch of other shows like that. Yeah, and and he was you know he great he guy. also was a you know a major industry figure and follower. So he was going to moderate this panel. Now, okay, uh, there was a long long-existing blood feud, essentially, between Borland and Microsoft. That is to say, between Philippe Kahn, president and founder of Borland International, and and Microsoft. What happened was that when Microsoft began all this, they were, remember, they were the language people. And in fact, that was the, back in the genesis of the PC, IBM went to DRI for the operating system and went to Microsoft for the languages. This, this notion that Microsoft was an OS company hadn't been born yet. Microsoft was into languages. They started, of course, with BASIC for the Altair um, and, and those machines. And then they, did, they had a BASIC for the Z80 and, and some Pascals. Well, Microsoft's, Microsoft's financial model at the time had their languages priced at $499. I remember Microsoft Pascal. I mean, I just was drooling for it. But, you know, $500 is like, ow. This is where Philippe Kahn comes in. I know where you're going here. Yes. And so so out of nowhere from, I mean, from from a company no one had ever heard of were these huge full-page ads for something called Turbo Pascal. And I loved it. For $49. $49. It just blew the crap out of Microsoft's whole pricing model. Well, not only he, that, it was better. It was fast. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. It, 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 I think it was the first place, if the first time we saw an integrated development environment, yes. or at least one that size. And you could so compile you, and run, run, write, compile, run like this. Boom, 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 boom. Yes, yes. So, so you, 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 you run in Turbo Pascal, and your editor is there. Mm-hmm. It, it executes there. And, I mean, it just ran like a bat out of hell. Okay, so you can imagine how Bill Gates felt about this. It was like, I mean, this was just, you know, talk about twisting the knife in him because it i mean it destroyed their whole pricing model so so needless to say i can see the steam coming out of it oh needless to say i mean there was just i mean there was it was a feud between those guys now fred gibbons was the uh ceo of personal software right and i think this was just this was they did pfs right pfs all those pfs programs right right and i think this was after the medical trouble that he had uh-huh. that I that John referred to on right. on Sunday's podcast right. because he had a, a a stroke and I mean it was, was was again he was enough of a figure in the industry that this was just horrifying for those of us you know who knew Fred and I mean he was a neat guy but you know he was back on his feet and so he was present and then Jim Manzi was Lotus you know the other you know major factor in the PC industry with spreadsheets. Um, 
And, of course, Bill was pissed off at them, too, because, you know, he wanted to do Excel and, and everything. But mostly he was furious with, with Philippe at, at Borland. Okay, so, so Stu, the, Stuart Alsop, the moderator, says, first, right off the bat, first question, and I remember Philippe was on the, was on the, was on the far right of this table. It was Philippe, Bill, Fred, and Jim Manzi was over on the left of, at the left-hand side of the stage. So, so Stu was, cl- was closest to um, Philippe. And so he says, so Philippe, um, we've just seen this presentation by Intel. Uh, you guys, as the, you know, the preeminent language you know, compiler makers, and there again, Bill is just, <laughs> um, does this mean you're going to be coming out with a new line of compilers for this new processor? And Philippe said, oh, absolutely. You know, we've been working with Intel where, you know, and he gave his Intel pro Intel spiel about, you know, they've been on the inside. They know all about this stuff, you know, and they'll have um, immediately uh, Pentium aware compiler versions for their software. Okay. Now, the other thing I forgot to mention was that Microsoft had been suffering under the reputation of being several chips behind yes for a long time remember that, that leo that's the story i've told uh where uh, andy grove was just furious because microsoft wouldn't keep up with intel right yeah. and so you know so so microsoft's os's and this was you know the joke in the industry at microsoft's expense was you know like the 486 was out and they were only supporting the 286 Ugh, just to and kill you them. could you could run their the windows on the newer right, processors right. because Microsoft had made them backward compatible, but windows wasn't taking advantage of any of those features. Right. And remember that at one point there was, there was windows three O and then there was a windows three eighty six, which was sort of this weird, okay, we, we, you know, we did something that now uses the three eighty six. So, you know, please just shut up about it. Um, <laughs> it doesn't run well. Nobody uses it. No software runs on it, but we made it. <laughs> so, so, so the worst possible thing for Bill Gates was that another new processor has come out. Right. And they don't online. have anything for it. Yeah. So and, uh, and, and the, was a penny 30, it was 32 it was 32 bit too, right? Yes. Yeah. So 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 they they they, they you know and they had no language Right. You know, new new so instruction them, set. So everything's ahead new. of them yeah. again. Oh, man. So, so, so Philippe says, oh, absolutely. We're going to come up with a whole new uh, set of languages. Okay. Bill cuts him off. But, I mean, he, he, he finishes, but, but Bill interrupts him and says, that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> the oh, Pentium is completely no, upward compatible. Oh, well. There is with the. Uh, oh, and by the way, I don't know if he's changed it at, the, at now or since, but at the time, Bill couldn't say processor. He said prosser. He was in a, <laughs> he was in a big, I don't know if he was in a hurry prosser. or what it was, prosser. but he said the Pentium prosser. prosser. It's like, we, you know, we knew what he meant and we all forgave him because he was Bill. Bill. So, but I have to say also, he is a first among equals at this point. He is not Bill, the Bill Gates uh, of, of later years where he's really the, the titan. Uh, True. It wasn't like you, you, you know, people were afraid of him at this point. They True. were kind of, they knew him. 
So anyway, he rails against Philippe, saying that that is ridiculous. There's absolutely no need for new languages or new compilers or new anything. This thing is compatible with the existing processors, and <laughs> and and you know, and that's just a bunch of baloney. <laughs> and so I'm like following this fight and waiting for Philippe to rebut, which he doesn't do, and. So I was like in the third row oh of in the auditorium, oh and I boy. stood up. Oh boy! And and Stu saw me standing up and said, "Oh, um, it looks like Steve wants to weigh in." Oh on, boy! <laughs> on this, and so I turned to Bill, and I said, uh, "Well, Bill, you're wrong." And he stares at me, not happy, and I said, "You know." just off the top of my head. I mean, we just saw Intel's presentation. Now, they explained that with this so-called risk core, many of the instructions which are used most often now execute in a single cycle. Right. Whereas other instructions are heavily microcoded because they're not used that often. So in order to save silicon, they've They've not tried to implement the, the things you don't do that often in hardware. They've microcoded that more heavily, but overall, it ends up being better. Now, a compiler has several different stages. The back end, the so-called code generator, is what takes sort of a pre-parsed language and turns it in and emits the absolute final machine language. I said, that is and an optimizing compiler is all about running ha, running the resulting program as fast as possible. So if a compiler were targeted at the Pentium processor, I think I might have said processor, uh, heightened that syllable <laughs> Processor, a bit. three syllables, Bill. <laughs> so so if, if, if a compiler were targeted at the Pentium processor, knew, knowing that it was generating code for that particular instance of the, of the universal Intel instruction set, it would definitely choose different instruction mixes for its final product because that would run much faster on a Pentium than it would on a 486, and so on. I mean, and, you know, to the, you know, the tech-savvy audience, everybody knew I was right. Of course. I mean, in fact, no Intel, question. when they make a new chip, the first thing they do is make a reference compiler for that chip, an optimizing compiler for that chip. Okay, and then I said, and um, another thing, this is the first processor with a large level 2 cache. All of these instructions only execute in a single cycle if all the pieces that they right. need are available on the cache. Right. Now, again, we know that there's a huge benefit for, for maximizing cache hits and a huge cost for going off cache. So again, if the compiler were targeted at a Pentium, it could know, and I think they were 4K caches at the time. I sort of, you know, not sure, but I think that's what it was. If it were targeted at this Pentium and it knew that it had a 4K cache, again, it could, it could optimize the instructions so that like, like loops and things would tend to fit in the cache and maximize, ma maximize cache hits in order, again, to increase performance. Right. So it seems very clear to me that... 
it does make sense, as Philippe has said, to to have compiler technology that recognizes what chip it's writing to. Yeah, but we don't have that yet, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and I mean, this is like what you know, you could have heard a pin drop uh-huh. in in the auditorium, and it was extremely uncomfortable. Oh boy! And then Stu said, <clears throat> "Well, okay, uh, moving along." Then so Bill didn't and even so- respond. He didn't at that point, but then after the we you know we got through with the whole thing, he and I we were milling around a little bit. He came up to me and he said, "Steve, you're a technical guy. It's very important that the world not get the wrong impression, yeah, about the compatibility yeah. of the Pentium processor, and <laughs> you know that's you know." I, and I said, "Bill." I said, you know me and the care I put into communication. I said, I absolutely will not give the wrong impression, but I want to be technically accurate. And he kind of glared at me a little bit and then wandered off. His big concern was that, well, of course, his big concern was that people continue to buy his products over the better product from from Philippe Kahn. But I could see what he was saying is that, you know, well, there's and th- by the way, this is what John was saying. The, the the message Bill said and ultimately was right is you don't have to worry about optimization because it's all going to be taken care of as these things get faster and better and better. Oh, and, you know, I have to I have to chime in something. He was again. right on that, though. It, it, had I been in the in in the twit group, I would have agreed with Jerry wholeheartedly about Pascal. It is the it is the the, the failure of Pascal to win is is one of the great losses in in computing science for people who it didn't is hear, hear absolutely twit. Uh, absolutely my favorite language of all time i i could i could write code in pascal and it just worked the first time and more significantly if i came back to something a couple of years later and looked at my own code it was still clear to me what it did right. I, it was just it was a fantastic language and 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 they were right during that podcast that it was because it was an originally UCSD Pascal was an interpreted Pascal right. you had a little you had a little a little front end um, pseudo compiler that compiled to pseudo code which a Pascal interpreter ran it allowed you to bootstrap the language environment the UCSD Pascal environment to, you know many different processor architectures very quickly but much as uh, Java is today actually Yes, and in fact, one of the things that, that Turbo Pascal did differently was it emitted native right. executables, right. EXEs, right. and you know, and just ran like a bat out of hell. So yeah, well, and, and, and Jerry's point was that it was a strongly typed language, so programmers didn't make, and it actually has a security impact. Programmers didn't weren't allowed to make the same dumb mistakes about typing and casting and so forth, and probably I don't know, I'm guessing would have we'd have fewer of these buffer overruns as well because. Uh, Pascal wouldn't let you do things like that. Well, it was it, and it was it was just visually beautiful. I mean, you know, there See, are I was a C guy. That, I liked C, but that's well, yeah. and there there are languages like C where there are contests like, OK, how much can you do in one line? Obfuscation. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 I'm, I'm trying to think there was a oh, APL was famous for this, too. Oh. Uh, APL, APL doesn't even use English. You had to put key caps on your different on your on your type on your uh, keyboard before you yeah, used you had, it. Bizarro um, symbols <laughs> that were yeah. super powerful, but, yeah. but, but they were wacky. But anyway, so 
um, I wanted to share that anecdote because that was, you know, if you know, Pascal lives, I don't think, I think probably most people don't use it, but if it lives, it would live on in Delphi, right? Which is pretty Pascal-like, the, the, the database yes. program. Yes, language. I mean, it is, and well, from, it, it is from basically a, a heavily object-oriented Pascal right, is what right. Microsoft, I mean, is what, what, what Borland, Borland does, did yeah. to it with, with Delphi. But I think that's probably the only place it still does live on, except maybe in an academic environment. Uh, and in my heart, Leo. <laughs> uh, I wish finally, you could still get Turbo Pascal. I think if you could get Turbo Pascal for Windows uh, Vista, you'd see a lot more great shareware and freeware programs out there. Yeah, it was it was a great language. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's around. I mean, it probably still runs. I wouldn't be at all surprised. <laughs> it's not native Although, anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, and lastly, there were some several people made a comment about one of Jerry's books. Uh, this was relative to Audible. Uh, and and your dialogue. Jerry um, did. Jerry that. said, Audible, start doing Moat in God's Eye. Well, that's the book. In yeah. my opinion, you know, the, it is one of the classic sci-fi books of all time. Um, he he and Niven, uh, Larry Niven, co-wrote it. And I, I've read it maybe three or four times. And it's just it's just a fantastic read. So I, I wanted to add my own, you know, here, here to to yeah. uh, Jerry and I think I think also um, you and um, and John also talked about you know the moat being you know a spectacular book classic I, I've never read it I'm on it right now I've never read Ooh. it I've well, read uh, all as, of the ring novels as soon as audible does it um, in uh, in uh, in an audible book format I, I absolutely think you should jump on it I'm in the middle of Neil Stevenson's new novel right now it's very very long and it's wonderful but it's taken me a while to get through it so well, uh, my last Oh, I'm sorry. My, my, my last little point was um, I'm, I'm setting up a new machine. Um, I, I think I've, I've, I know that I've told our listeners how annoyed I am that I've got a quad core machine as on as you know, I'm sitting in front of it. It's my workstation and that only one core is ever doing anything at any point because there's nothing I'm doing that that taxes it in the way, for example, that, that doing media does. Right. And so I was finally got so annoyed I had to. I something I was doing. I can't remember what I was recompressing something that took a little over 24 hours to do a two hour um, uh, video file on the mach- on the machine that I had. I thought, OK, I, that's just I can't I can't tolerate that. So I built up a new, really strong machine. Um, it's a it's it uses the quad core Intel uh, Intel extreme uh, ninety six seventy five or ninety five sixty something. Or I don't know what it is, but it's four cores, um, twelve megs of on chip cache. Um, it's in two six meg chunks shared by each pair of cores, um, with a thirteen hundred and thirty three megahertz front side bus DDR three RAM. I gave it six. I gave it eight gigs. I, I just uh, want to point out you're building essentially the ultimate gaming machine. That's almost exactly the specs that we're doing for the ultimate game. Is it? An, is it? You bought the ninety-seven seventy. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, oh, fifteen hundred dollars. I just want to point out fifteen hundred dollar processor. Oh, and in fact, um, I I used a super micro <laughs> motherboard and case. And Intel in in the in the documentation w- came with the processor. They were talking about how the the new and improved fan and you know heat sink. Yeah. This thing, I mean, it's, it's huge. huge. <laughs> it's like a big mushroom cloud. But why? It, you, you just said you don't you, you don't use all quad cores. What are you doing with this? This is for my media stuff, ah. for, for my media work. And but the point is that the case did not fit 
this huge fan. mushroom yeah. fan heat sink. I had yeah. to literally, I had, I had to modify the, 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 the holder of the back fan, cut away some of the plastic, and, it, and you know, then it worked. <laughs> Um, because you know, I guess Intel had just increased the size of the heat sink for this thing. And they even have a blue LED that they've got shining out through this thing. Like, you know, oh, like yeah. all those aftermarket right, um, right. wacky they, People want that. What see. the hell? Cuss a penny more. Yeah, put it, exactly. put it in. So anyway, but, but, but my point was that this thing now, I, as, as a test, I had it recompress the same thing that took 24 hours. And it did it in better than real time in <gasps> 57 minutes. You're kidding. No. Oh, that's a significant jump. So, I mean, it was, you know, what kind of hard drives did you put in that? Uh, <laughs> I did a, I have a three terabyte raid uh, using raid a, high point, a, hi, a high point, a high point caching all down. Uh, uh, SATA two. Uh, so four, one terabyte drives that give me uh, running raid five. So I'm pulling from, from, right. you know, essentially all of them at once and getting three times the throughput that you would get from an from an um from just a single one did you use the and, velociraptors those new uh, two and a half inch ten thousand rpm drives or no i don't uh, the two and a half inch drives makes you nervous scare me yeah they just all seem like kind of flaky laptop drives to me right i, I know that's crazy well they're getting the speed because anyway. of the as because of the increased aerial density I use but. some big uh one terabyte hitachi drives uh-huh. there, there's a lot like there there's the hitachi a consumer grade, and then there's a server grade, and I went with a server grade, Smart. and I put four of those in the in the case. Smart. So, I mean, anyway, this is just my. How big's the power machine. supply? Uh, six fifty watts. I think is that all. I think so. You need more, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think the processors it, needs more than that. Anyways, That's an amazing and, and box. It's got a pair of Panasonic. Uh, the only uh, thing I should, the only thing that's going to be different probably in the Ultimate Gaming Machine is very close. DDR3, the ninety seven seventy. Um, eight gigs of RAM, yeah, very likely. Maybe maybe less, but probably eight gigs. The only thing that's going to be different is the video subsystem. We're probably going to do, uh, you know, uh, we might do four-way SLI. I'm not sure yet what we're going to do. Ooh, wow. I, uh, yeah. now, well, it's all right? that. It, it's tricky, though, because you can't fit in the gonna case. Have to have, you're going to have to have slots that are, that are going to fit all those cards. I know, and the cards are double width. They're huge. So yeah. we may just do dual SLI because we just, for practical purposes. Yeah, and we're going nice. to liquid cool. Anyway, the um, the point of all this was that in reinstalling my favorite software, I encountered one of my programs. Uh, it's called DVD Lab Pro 2. It is my absolute prize-winning choice for DVD authoring. Uh, the things you want to do, like just make a, uh, a DVD where you put it in and it plays you know, a, a two-hour movie – that it does those easily. If you want to do more fancy, like multi-episode DVDs of like your favorite shows that you've captured from the air and so forth, it's easy to do menuing, and it even gives you access to the VM in the DVD player. I don't know if if our listeners know, but DVDs actually have a virtual machine in them, really, and DVD authoring tools hide all that from you, so that when you build a menu, they're actually writing. They're like using canned virtual machine code to 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 basically do all of the work behind the scenes. Well, you don't have to mess with any of that, and I haven't yet, but I know that it's all there. And for example, the authors, it's a company called Media Chance. They have, for example, a a demo of a quiz system written, you know, that, that is a is basically it's a quiz technology that runs on the DVD player itself 
using their virtual machine code. But all of that is available. They've got an emulator and an editor and a debugger. And anyway, who makes these, this? Is this you lead? Who does this? It, it's Media Chance. Media Chance. M e d i a c h a n c e dot com. Media Chance dot com. And the program's DVD Lab Pro Two. Anyway, what I the point of this is that when I was installing it. I was I, maybe I was upgrading or something. I went back to the site, you know, because because I'm a licensed registered user, and one of the things that he said was, "Does not bother you with any online activation." Yeah, and I thought exactly because the other tool that I absolutely love that does this compression, my 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 killer compression, you know, favorite tool is we've talked about it before is TMPGENC. Yeah. Uh, the Tsunami MPEG encoder by uh, Pegasus uh, Sys or Pegasus Inc. Sys. Anyway, um, that's the one. But what really bothers me about these guys is that every so often it reauthorizes itself. And so, I mean, I've paid them. I pay over the years. I paid them a lot of money for a bunch of their different stuff. And so, I'm worried. That this thing, you know, they're going to go away one of these days, or their 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 authentication servers are going to be down when I need them, and this thing will not run unless it it renews your license, unquote, which it's doing, you know, autonomously, meaning that you have to have an internet connection, and that that it's you know, it's not even like doing it once, like activating Windows, and then Windows will stay alive for a long time, and then I wanted to. I wanted. I was looking for a good simultaneous burning tool. Um, the one that I had been using didn't like this new motherboard and uh, SATA interfaces because I've got four um, DVD burners um, for for Pioneer. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I'm not going to ask you what you're using four DVD burners for. Well, because if I need four copies of something, I don't want to have to wait and do it four times Why on a single no. burner. Yeah. But anyway, so so I used a, a, a very nice program called Gear Pro, but it was through Digital River, who I hate. Um, that's the e-commerce folks. Yeah, and everything yeah. about Digital River just is. I have to buy me. stuff through there from time to time, and I don't like. And it in either. this case, what happened was I activated it once, and then I can't remember now why, but I rebuilt my hard drive, and it deactivated it, oh. and I could not reactivate it. So you had to buy it again. Oh uh, well, no. I mean, I had to send them email and to explain that I, you yeah, know, I, nah, nah, I told nah, them I resized yeah. the partition, and you know, I think I was just messing around with the RAID st- uh, system, and and so I, I knew I was in trouble, but I, it just bugged me. So, yeah. the, the the point of all this is, I just wanted to sort of explain my own philosophy and where Spinrite is in this spectrum. Um, when you buy Spinrite, you receive a transaction code, which is a thirteen character and digit token that which we email you you see it on the screen you can cut and copy paste it i mean that's the keys to the kingdom that's all you ever need to download spinride anytime anywhere it does no activation no online nonsense i mean I, you know i've never done any kind of copy protection and you know i've survived and the the last thing I'm going to do is is annoy people the way Thank so you. many of these contemporary um, software platforms now annoy people 
by you know certainly not periodically activating and certainly not a, you know in any way imposing a limit on the number of times you, you can use something or download something and it's it's really come in handy for people who for example they're traveling with their laptop mm-hmm. spin rights at mm-hmm. home mm-hmm. Um, but they're able to like you know call home get the code from someone else in their family enter it into GRC's website, it gives them a fresh download link, and they download their copy of Spinrite right from our servers. So thank you for anyway, doing that. I just I, I was thinking about, you know, my approach to this relative to all of these, you know, crazy approaches that that are increasingly annoying. I think and, it's good for, really for people like you to talk about uh, the fact that this works for you, because I think there's the general impression that, well, yeah, maybe copy protection is a bad thing, but if you don't do it, you're going to lose your shirt. So I think it's really important for people to know, no, in fact, you can. This is a legitimate business a practice, and it works, and, and, and you're, the, you're living proof. And I think there are many examples of this. I just wish they, that people would come forward and say, yeah, no, you don't well, have to do it. And I know that Spinrite people is do it out being of fear. used. I know that Spinrite is being used illegally. Of course. But, but I, I don't think those are lost sales. Right. They're pro- someone who's going to use it illegally, who's going to, you know— Borrow a copy from from his friend, or 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 find it somewhere online, or or you know s- somehow do that. They're not someone who's going to buy a copy right. from me, and so you know. They're it's not, not don't lost think of them as illegal co- uh, copies. Think of them as customers who haven't paid you yet. <laughs> well, and and we've heard so many testimonials yeah. over the years yeah. from people who did loan, and I have no problem with this. They loan right. their friend a copy; it saves their butt, and then the friends, and, and then they say, "Look." This Spinrite just worked for you. Help GRC out. Buy it. Yeah. And and they do. People want to. People want to. I think. I believe in people. I think if they find something of value, they pay for it. They yeah. really do. And if and if they didn't realize the value yet, then they just they haven't paid you yet. But they they people are honest. I think in most and cases. And if you treat them, if, if you, you treat them, them that way, and the yeah. minute they feel like you say, uh, "Oh, you're a criminal. I'm going to copy protect," then they don't mind stealing something. Well, for like, example, well, I mean, tsunami. Me. Tsunami has a lock, in my opinion, on compression. Yes, I mean it is a fantastic tool, but in but in the same way that PayPal has a lock at the moment on on right. what what PayPal does, you can't wait in for both, somebody to if, come along and replace them. Exactly. If yeah. there is an alternative to tsunami that is a better like compressor, that. Yep. that doesn't you know worry me by constantly needing to re renew its license, yeah. I would much prefer you bet. using that. You bet. You know, and I'd I'd rather support that than than this you know nightmare of like worrying one of these days I'm going to lose access to my favorite right. compressor. Hey, Steve, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want everybody to stay tuned because we're going to talk about the forms system. And if you didn't hear Steve talking about why these systems are so scary, you you better keep listening. The way this thing works is going to blow your mind. But we do want to thank the folks at Audible for supporting our podcast. Audible.com. Uh, I'm sorry, audiblepodcast.com uh, slash um, security now is the place to go. And I'm going to recommend a book. We like to recommend books when we do the Audible commercials, give you something to to buy with your credit. Because when you sign up there at audiblepodcast.com slash security now, you do get a free book. And since we were talking about Larry Niven, this is my favorite Larry Niven book, Ring World. It is incredible. I think I've recommended it before, but if you're a science fiction fan, you can see it says this audio is available in your library. That means I've, I'm, I have listened to it. Uh, if you're a science fiction fan and you haven't read Wing World, you've got to read it. But even if you have read it in book form, wonderful book to listen to. I like science fiction in the car. I like how it 
draws me into another world, another universe. It keeps me thinking. It's not, you know, it's not completely escapist. And Larry Niven is hard science. So it keeps you thinking, keeps your brain working as you're driving. They say that at Audible. They say, really, our books are for the times you want to read, you want to learn, you want to be entertained, but your eyes are busy doing other things like driving, like working out, like in the garden. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Go there right now. Get your uh, copy of Larry Niven's Ringworld for free or any book. There are 50,000 titles. I think you'll agree. Uh, Audible is a great way to listen to your favorite books. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. All right, Steve, are you ready? Ready, my friend. Time to talk. I should mention also, speaking of science fiction, that WALL-E is really fun. Oh, did you see it? I saw it on Friday, yes. You loved it? I really, really loved it. Oh. I, I, you know, I've, I, I let things like Finding Nemo and Monsters, Inc. and things sort of pass because... Um, You're not, you don't have don't kids. Know. Why should you go see those things? Yeah. Um, although I will say that I felt a little... Uh, not uncomfortable, but I mean, other parents were looking at at me and 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 the buddy that I was Who's there this with. Guy? Thinking, Who are these guys? <laughs> where where are their kids? Who are these perverts? Well, let me tell you here? something. My kids won't. Go. I'm going along too. Henry oh. said it's G-rated, Dad. I said, I'm not going to go see it. I said, Henry, everybody loves Wally. They crammed so much yeah. personality into this little box with treads. Oh, I can't wait to I see mean, it. I mean, just, it's just phenomenal. Pixar's I, I can't amazing. wait for it to be out on disc and, and look at all the extras that they'll include with it. I just I wanted to recommend it to people who think they might like, might like that kind of thing. I loved it. I thought it was oh, really good. Everybody's raving about it. Like, all my friends are saying, I haven't seen it yet. I'm trying to get my son to go. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about forms. Is it P-H-O-R-M-S? No S P H O R M form. Okay. Okay. So, so this is a company that we began discussing in overview two weeks ago that pays ISPs to have their equip their equipment installed in the ISPs data center for the purpose of monitoring the actions of the ISPs customers and aggregating profiles for for the purpose of understanding what kind of websites the customers visit it's then the it's then an an advertising networking company much like doubleclick and and so many others or which which then places ads they they sell ad space on websites and the idea is that for example, using Google Ads, as we were saying two weeks ago, when you when you go to a page, the Google Ads you see are relevant to the page you're on. What's different about the form system and this the and a, a whole bunch, a collection of next generation nightmare companies like this, they they track the user, not the page. So. So they figure out by profiling what pages you look at, they figure out and, and, and divide you into a categories. And, and their, their marketing brochures talk about how they have like a thousand different categories that, that, that users get, get checkmarked in. And then when you're on any website, which is using ads hosted by this advertising network, you're not getting ads relevant or relative to the page but to you because they're tracking you separately from 
um, from from where you go. So, as I mentioned a couple of years ago, Form P H O R M began this work in '06, and they stumbled a bunch because they were trying to inject JavaScript in, in line into people's web pages, so that when you would go to a page, you would that the page you received from the server had actually been altered by this spy technology, for lack of a better term. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's what it is. They would insert code that your browser would execute. The problem is they weren't very good at it. Maybe it can't be done in a robust fashion. You know, it's not something I even want to think about. But as a consequence, people would find that this they were pasting this JavaScript into Web 2.0 um, uh, blog entries and things. It would like it was leaking out and and being seen. It was uh, IE would hang and go into an infinite loop and had to be shut down by using Task Manager to to lock it down because it would use a hundred percent of the me- machine's resources. I mean, there's like all these problems. And what really annoyed people is that that this was all being done surreptitiously um, with, um, I think it was BT, one of the top three ISPs in the UK, was like, you know, allowing form to, to use their customers unwittingly, causing them all these problems. So, and these are also, this form is a renamed company. It used to be media something, like media... 24-7 or something. I'm thinking of a bad name. word that I don't, I'm just gonna, not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so you know, these, these are not good people. And, and, and back then, they were doing rootkit uh, spyware that was installing itself in people's machines, profiling them, and, and hooking the kernel in order to hide from anyone being able to see the randomly named directories that they created. So, you know, there's this, this a history of badness here. Okay, so... So come forward to current time. Now we're at today. Form somehow has continued to exist and is causing a huge kerfuffle in the UK because the main three ISPs have been seduced by the money that they'll be able to make. The idea is, you know, ISPs would like to make some money rather than just selling bandwidth to end users and these other companies come along and say hey we'll pay you we're going to we're going to anonymize everything we do we're going to respect your customers privacy we're going to put our hardware insert it into your network flow and we'll pay you doesn't that sound like a win 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 and unfortunately ISPs are saying yes as you mentioned charter uh, here in the U.S. has has been made gun shy of of this in Thank the case you. of of a yeah. partnership with Nebuad because this was really upsetting people. So what I want to talk about, and the reason I warned people to bring their propeller hat and beanies, <laughs> is what what it is that Form is doing now in order to forcibly track ISP users without any JavaScript injection. JavaScript injection is the easier way to do it, but that can't, you know, people are, maybe people who listen to the podcast are disabling JavaScript, um, or if they've just never found a way to do it safely, or the idea of modifying the web page that I download from CNET, 
you know, just really, really crosses the line. The good news is the UK apparently has substantially more stringent privacy guidelines than we do in the US. And so, I mean, there are there are all kinds of of you know people getting ready to talk lawsuit here about just the idea that uh, that I go to CNET and get a page and secretly some spy machine in my ISP is injecting code into the page I re- I retrieve for the purpose of tracking me and profiling me over time. So, Form came up with a solution which is amazing. Amazing in 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 how amazingly it is. awful, yeah. Amazingly yeah. awful. Okay, so here's how it works. Um, I'm an ISP. I'm I, I I'm a customer of an ISP that has subcontracted this system with, with 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 Form. So Form has installed a bunch of hardware in the ISP's facility. When when I go to and we'll just use CNET as an example. I started with that. We go to www.cnet.com. Um, my request, oh, I, let, let me back up a little bit, I'll give a, a little quick background on, on, on cookies. This is a quick refresher. Um, cookies, as we know, are little tokens which are offered by servers and are, are then returned by the browser for subsequent queries to the same server. The server is identified by domain. So, for example, if if you go to cnet.com, the and, and like with a virgin browser, it's got no cookies in it, and it's never seen the internet before. You go to see you you put into the URL www.cnet.com. The cnet server in in responding to you with a page will will include in the headers that you'd never see, that's not part of the page content, but it's things like the expiration time of the page, how long the page should live, um, and and I don't know, how, how many bytes long the page is. And there's a bunch of, of, of sort of of metadata um, that that is sent out first that helps the browser display the page. One of those things is a cookie header, which is offered by the server. the The browser will retain the cookie for varying lengths of time depending upon how the browser and or the cookie is is formatted and and with subsequent requests to cnet.com the browser will it'll look at all the cookies it has and it remembers cookies by domain so when as it's making a request for an asset from cnet.com, it'll check to see if it has any cnet.com cookies. And if so, it adds them to the requests and sends them back. So that's how they work. So all of that is called a first-party cookie. A, a third-party cookie... And, and I, just, which, I just might add that I don't think there's anything wrong with first-party cookies. This is a really how the web works. And uh, I agree. Very and useful. in fact, it's... It's because of the fact that there's no enduring relationship with your browser from one page to the next. We call it state. A state, right. I put in a URL and it gives me a page. Well, then if I put in another URL, it gives me another page. It doesn't know I'm the same person unless I hand back the token it gave me. And then it goes, oh, that's that guy. Okay. And in fact, that's the way you're able to log in to eBay or to PayPal or for, you know virtually anything where that, that requires you to have some credentials. 
I went back to the WallStreetJournal.com yesterday to look up an article that was in there, and it said, oh, hi, Steve. And I'm thinking, isn't that nice? I mean, I'm glad it remembers me. If I, you know, if I went there with a different machine, I'd have to give it my username and password again. But I told it, you know, remember me on this machine. And it did so by, by giving my browser a cookie, which I then send back. So for, for low security sorts of authentication, like, you know, being staying logged in at wallstreetjournal.com, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's a convenience the thing that the the originators at Netscape, I I don't think they thought about this. I think it just sort of slipped through. Is what if a website offered ads by somebody else? That is the actual ad URL on the web page said www.doubleclick.net. Well, it turns out that the the server you are um, Whose, whose domain you're on, like CNET, that's the first party. We call assets which come from other servers third parties because they're, they're not, you know, the, the, the server's the first party, I'm the second party, and this random other thing is the third party. Well, it turns out they're able to do cookies too. In the normal configuration of browsers, third-party cookies are enabled except in the case of Safari. I and think I that's because I had off. Yeah, but I think that's because they're kind of seen as owning part of that page. So there it's it's you know, you, you've gone to a page and there's because these banners are coming from another site. It's almost as if there's a little frame on the page and that's another site you're looking at there. Correct. That's the thinking Correct. anyway. Well, and and so here's the problem with that is that the clever marketing guys, I mean, these marketing guys are nothing if not clever. Um, they realized that if they gave me a cookie, they double click, for example, gave me a cookie because an ad was displayed at when I went to pull up a CNET page. The cookie that I get is for doubleclick.net. That's the domain that the cookie's for. Well, that means if I then later go over to the wallstreetjournal.com and the Wall Street Journal is also buying ad space from from DoubleClick and displays a DoubleClick ad, my DoubleClick cookie that I received at CNET goes back to DoubleClick while I'm at the WallStreetJournal.com. And one of the things that is part of the headers in a query, that is when I'm sending a request to something, like when I'm when the ad is being requested from DoubleClick, the URL of the parent page is so-called the, the referrer. So DoubleClick knows what I'm looking at. That is, it knows not only who I am anonymously, but from this token, it knows that somebody was at CNET who was later at the Wall Street Journal and knows what articles I'm looking at and what pages I'm pulling up. And so you can see that if if DoubleClick succeeded significantly so that they had ads spread all over the Internet, over time they would be able to build up a history of all the places I had been that were serving their ads. I mean, it's not so, everywhere you've been. Again, just places no, that, that, that were serving serve those their ads. ads. Right, right. Yes. But, of now, course, sites like DoubleClick, now owned by Google, are so in so many places. That can be a pretty complete picture. Okay, so so that's the model. Now, notice that 
that, okay, it has to use third-party cookies. Now, people who are privacy aware are turning third-party cookies off. Um, I'm going to be coming out very strong with a with, with a with, with a facility for allowing people to verify, and I'm going to I'm auto, will be autonomously letting people know who come by GRC to like use shields up or for any purpose. I'll just notify them. Oh, by the way, you've got third parties third party cookies turned on. Uh, if you're interested in turning them off, click here, and I'll I'll show you how to do that because. There's just no purpose for them. They should be turned off. They're used for tracking people around the net. The other, the other problem with the profiles generated by DoubleClick is that they only have trans, they only have visibility into me, as you said, Leo, for all the sites who are serving ads. They don't know anything about me for all the sites I go to that are not using DoubleClick ads. Well, except there are variations on that. For example, as we've seen, when you go to PayPal, many PayPal links actually redirect you through DoubleClick. So, so there's another way that DoubleClick is able to access um, a, a, a user by actually using a redirected link. <coughs> okay. Could you... Could you um, uh, Block it in other ways by than by turning off uh, third party cookies. For instance, using a host file to just say block double click. Absolutely, that would that would that would null any of the of the ads which were being served because your browser looks in the host file get first. There. It would not get the IP address for double click. The problem is that there are side effects like none of the PayPal links would work. You couldn't click on a double click. <sighs> dot net paypal link because and as we know now some of those links lead to pages you need to get to they're not just to ads right and so it's a way Maybe of that's of why they do that enforcing that not being that's done. why they do that okay so now imagine i bet double click brave- pays them now we understand why that double click referral is in there well there's even something worse uh, and that's called cross-context leakage. Oh, but I'm going to leave that for the episode where we really get in and talk about first and third-party okay. cookies. Because it's possible for browsers that do not block outbound cookies, but only block inbound. And by the way, that's IE and Safari. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible for them to receive a cookie in the first party and then subsequently leak it out. <laughs> For, through the third party, even when you've got third party cookies disabled, sounds like a legal document. It's the party, a bad of the thing. first part's receiving cookies at the party of the third party is going to get. Okay, get. so now we understand. We've got some background for cookies. Now listen to what Forum is doing. the The only nice thing about DoubleClick is that they're they're relatively hands off. They are they're they're not involved with the ISP. They have a relationship with the website that you go to and they have sort of a forced relationship with your browser because they're they're putting cookies in there and you're you're displaying their ads but you know they're they're still they're, they're not nearly as invasive as as what we're seeing now with this next new generation of advertisers so i'm a customer of an isp using the form system I go to www.cnet.com. I put that URL into my browser and send a query out to the Internet. Well, 
My ISP receives it because that's what my ISP is there for. They're the way I get to the Internet. Equipment app that has been installed by form in the ISP's facility intercepts this query. And it looks to see whether my browser has a cookie for that is in the CNET.com domain for something called WebWise. WebWise.net is the domain owned by Form. So WebWise, and if you look WebWise.net up in Whois, you'll see Form, Inc. in New York, New York, and the names of the technical and administrative contacts for, for, for Form. So, so they're, they're intercepting my bringing up a CNET page to see whether I have a CNET cookie that they planted in the CNET domain. Now, let's take this from the beginning. So, initially, I would not. If there's not, if I don't have a WebWise cookie in the CNET domain, they block my access to CNET. A server steps in and, get this, Leo, pretends to be CNET. Oh, see, that should be completely prohibited and banned. It pretends to be www.cnet.com. Because it's a proxy, you can do that. It's except, well, it's in the ISP's facility. It controls it, it. It answers the connection and this query that I've made. See, if I were CNET, I'd be... All right. Oh, wait, that's not weird. We're just getting warmed up here. <laughs> and it, and so it responds as the CNET server and returns what's called a 307 temporary redirect. A 307, normally when you bring up a web page, you get a 200 response, 200 and, and a, like an OK, which is saying, here's the page you asked for, no problem. A 307 response tells your browser that, that that URL you have asked for has been temporarily relocated to somewhere else. It tells it that it has been relocated to webwise.net. So, so the, the, the CNET, um, um, the CNET request you made, it comes back to your browser from this intercepting server at your ISP saying, oh, CNET has moved. It's now webwise.net, and then there's a, then it's, it's slash bind slash and a question mark, and then some parameters, which include the original URL at CNET that you were trying to access, because they have to hold on to that since they've just intercepted you and redirected you. So now your browser, not knowing anything the wiser, goes, oh, the page I want is moved. So it now makes a query to webwise.net with this fancy thing on the end, which contains the original CNET URL and parameters that you tried to access. The reason it does that is if your browser has a webwise.net cookie, that it will give it up. That is, the webwise.net cookie that your browser has will then be sent along with this, this redirected query 
to webwise.net. Once again, that's intercepted at the ISP. It doesn't actually go to webwise.net. Their server located at the ISP intercepts it and checks to see whether that in, that redirection query contained a webwise.net cookie. If so, they now know who you are. That is, there, there's a webwise.net domain cookie on your machine if you've ever used this ISP before. So then they know who you are. If there's not a and webwise.net... And when you say who you are, you don't just mean, oh, they've seen you in another session before. They know who you are, Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte. They know who you are. Oh, your ISP because you're their customer. Does. Yeah, you're, exactly. Your ISP knows everything about you. Right. So, so they so know where you live. That's, they know they know your credit card number. They know who you are. Right. Now there there can be and probably is a hands off relationship between your ISP and and the form so. people. But again, but who knows? That's the kind of thing that changes in the fine print of right. the license agreement. And then it's, oh, wait, you didn't read the license agreement? <laughs> okay, so, so, so now if, you, if there's not a WebWise cookie, which there would not be if you were just like, you know, Mr. Virgin never used the Internet before, they would assign you one. That's a 128-bit pseudo-random value. So it's just a random token, but it uniquely identifies you to their system. So, so they, they respond to this, your access to webwise.net by again giving your browser a 307 temporary redirect response, this time to, back to CNET, to a, a special fake page at CNET. But since it's the webwise.net pseudo server, which is serving you, if you didn't have a webwise.net cookie, you do now. And notice that it's a first-party cookie because you went directly, your browser went to webwise.net, I mean, requesting a resource from that URL. So it's a first-party, you know, most privileged cookie, which your your browser has now received. So unless you block all cookies, you, you got it. Yes. So now your now your browser receives another redirect, a 307, from webwise.net telling it, oh, we were wrong. Uh, CNET turns out to be where you want to go after all, except it's another fake page at CNET. Now your browser re-requests a CNET.com address. Because of the way it's formatted, the 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 technology the form technology again steps in pretends to be cnet fakes it out and answers the query in that in that fancy url is still hanging on there for dear life the original url you tried to go to at cnet and encoded is the unique id for webwise in this query that allows the server, which is, again, for the second time, pretending to be CNET, even though it's not, that allows it to obtain from your CNET query the WebWise UID, unique ID, and it sets a, this is where it sets a WebWise cookie in the CNET domain, because your browser thinks it's at CNET. 
and a, a server has stood in and intercepted the CNET server and is faking it out. So your browser, uh, in, in getting the response back, back comes a, a web-wise cookie for the CNET domain containing your unique ID. And that response is another 307 temporary redirect, finally to the actual page you wanted to go to on CNET. So your browser receives that along with the webwise.net cookie, which is now in the CNET domain and makes the request to CNET. Now, every time your browser brings up any CNET assets, it includes, in addition to any cookies, the real CNET cookies, which CNET has given it, a webwise cookie containing your, your form unique ID. And, now, and so, all of the work you do on the net, anytime your browser is making a query, there's this spy server that checks the query to see if the query contains for that domain, no matter where you're going, Apple.com, CNET, CNN, MSNBC, Twit.tv, no matter where you go, what's happened is, essentially, every single site you visit is given an extra cookie. So your browser ends up filled with these web-wise cookies for every single domain you visit. And those are first-party cookies. And any query you make outbound is checked for the presence of one of these webwise.net cookies. If it's missing, it sends you on that multiple server dance, the, 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 the triple 307 temporary redirect dance, jumping you around between fake servers in order to, to get your webwise cookie if it, in order in order that it can tr essentially migrate that over from the webwise.net domain into the domain you're attempting to go to. So is the whole process, the intent of the whole process just to get these cookies, these webwise cookies, on your system for every site you visit? Yes. That's, <laughs> that's, the whole, that's, the, that's, that's why they're doing this dance. That's what these people have achieved with this, the, the, this horrible... And a first-party cookie to boot. Trip a first-party cookie right. planted in the domain of every of every domain you visit, in in and one in the in the webwise.net domain, which is which essentially is essentially replicated among all the other domains that that your browser ever visits with your unique ID. With your unique ID, now imagine. A couple things. Now, I just all, I want to say something because there's some confusion in the chat room because you use CNET as an example. CNET has nothing to do with this. No site you have you visit has anything to do with this. This is form doing this. Yes, in fact, in, in fact, fact, I'm sure CNET would hate this. Well, yes, because you know your relationship with them is being polluted by by a cookie that they never set for your browser. And that someone else's server is pretending to be them, right. giving your browser um, multiple redirection commands, bouncing it around URL space for the purpose of planting cookies across all the domains you visit. Now, 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 now there are some companies that do want this because there's no value in doing this unless you can sell this information to an advertiser. Well, okay, so... Notice that what this does. The okay. The other thing happening. So now, so now, imagine a query to CNET 
that that does contain the webwise cookie as it will after this three redirect dance that your browser is is, is taken on so now now finally the result of that final third redirect is you actually the browser is allowed to contact cnet in the process this system removes the webwise cookie component from the query so cnet does not see uh. the webwise cookie that was that is essentially trying they're trying to corral it so it only stays between you and the ISP in sort of an ISP you and ISP private dialogue so they do remove the webwise cookie if they can when can't they well if i take my laptop to starbucks and i'm on t-mobile you're not using their isp i'm not using my isp at home right. that was the source of this infection so every every site i visit cannot have that webwise cookie stripped out on the fly it goes out and so this id that, that i've been assigned is visible great. to every site that I visit. And that's a common ID. Normally, sites give you their own ID right. per site. There's no aggregation. This aggregates all, you know, your identity across all the sites that you might visit because your browser has been polluted with a common cookie for every domain you visited while you were under the influence of this form-based ISP. The other instance where they are unable to strip out the cookie is over a secure connection because they're not at this point in the game. And God help us. If, if, if our ISPs ever start requiring us to accept a, an SSL certificate as part of our agreement to use the ISP, because that would allow them to intercept our secure socket connections. But at this point, the whole system is blind to any secure conversations we have any secure traffic so anytime i'm i am using https i am bypassing e even from my isp my 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 form written isp i am bypassing that technology and the webwise cookie again is leaking out and is visible to any third to, to any sites i'm visiting over a secure connection because there's no way that the form system can filter SSL connections at this point. So, so I mean, so again, to, to underscore this, this isn't CNET doing anything. This isn't twit.tv doing anything. This is your ISP in collaboration with form doing something to essentially track what you're doing on the Internet. Yes, a highly comprehensive cross-internet tracking. Now It goes far now, beyond anything third-party cookies ever could do. Oh, yeah. Well, because now, look what else happens. So finally, my request to the real CNN page gets through right. because it's been, it's been, it's had this web-wise cookie embedded in the domain that my browser's carrying. When the page comes back, this system inspects the page. This system reads the page that is being sent back to me and does an analysis of it to determine what I'm interested in. So it's reading. It's, this is where the spying really comes in at, beyond identity tagging. Now it's reading everything I'm reading and building a profile of who I am and associating it with this tag, which it has built up. 
And, and over time, it builds a database of it knows every page that I go to. Mm. It, it, they say they are not maintaining a record of that. What they're doing is they're scanning the page, doing a, a, some sort of semantic analysis, determining with, with, within categories. They say they they're have more than for a keywords. thousand. Yeah. Well, they have a thousand categories and they, so they like put check marks in categories for people of like, oh, this person is interested in the following sorts of things right. based on their, their history of their internet usage. But that's and not what this is limited to. They could do more. That just happens to be what, they're, what they say they're doing. Well, right and there again, I mean, this notion of being, of inserting themselves in the pipeline means, well, wouldn't it be more valuable if I could also read the, this person's email right. coming and going between right. the ISP? You know, web, ah, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's really not as specific because these are those pages that have been pre, pre-prepared. Imagine if I could read the email content of the, of the conversations. And, oh, don't worry. We're not going to save it. We're not going to, we're not going to keep it. We're just going to scan and analyze it, determine more about who you are. So one of the things that's different about this from DoubleClick is that is the level of visibility. That is, say that only one, only one company hosted ads from Form. Well, that one company has the advantage of all of your surfing. That is, the ad being served is about you, even if only one, if only if you go to one place. Whereas DoubleClick needs to is only able to build up a profile based on the places you go. This system builds a profile based on everywhere you go and makes that available to any of the people who are using their ad network mm. for, for advertising revenue. Is any internet service provider in the U.S. currently using Form? Um, I don't know. Um, the, Nobody the would admit to it, is, probably. <laughs> well, I mean, it is. this has now become a real hot potato. Our guest in two weeks is going to give us the inside skinny on what's been going over, on over in the U.K. And, and it's what's illegal happening. in the U.K., isn't it? Well, I mean, there are people who are really up in arms, and yeah. I'm glad. I mean, yeah. again, my, my role is to explain what this thing does, what the technology is. There could certainly be people who say, well, wow. I like the idea of more relevant ads, uh, or I like the idea of... Well, that's of, the other side of this, which I was going to get into, but we've gone way over, so I, I don't want to get into it too much. But the, that's the, and that's the case that, like, for instance, Charter was making. is it, All it does is give ads, give you ads that you, about stuff you care about. What's wrong with that? Right. I mean, uh, we're not trying to steal your personal information. Uh, I guess your point is that the technology could do that. The technology could, and I'm concerned about about drift and migration of capability. Right. I would have no problem, for example, if this was an opt-in system. Right. If if you had to go to your ISP's page or a form page and say, hey, I'd like a $3 a month discount on my bandwidth, please. I'm happy to you know contribute my profiling habits um, um, on behalf of, of this um, uh, technology in return for a discount on my bandwidth. I mean, if it were an opt-in system, that makes sense. I love that the language I read somewhere said, well, the reason we made it opt-out is that we feel that more people will be able to benefit from it as an opt-in system. What happens, of course, is that people are furious when they find out that, that you know this kind of game is being played. 
Yeah. Well, I'm furious already, and I'm really glad that you actually raised the, raised the issue and have talked about this, because this is uh, pretty appalling. But as, as you say, the, it's it's not necessarily how, how it's used. And I think that this is why people like Charter are kind of surprised when we stand up on our hind legs and say, wait a minute, we don't want that. Um yeah, this is not for us. This is for them. This is the yeah. charter. Charter is getting benefits revenue them. From, yes, from form as in return for letting form profile us. But their spin uh, was you're their spin was totally this is this is to your benefit because you're going to get, uh, you know, ads that are more uh, targeted at you. And my feeling is fine. Make it opt in. Yeah. You know, simple I- I- intercept the first time I try to go to the net. Interse- I mean, there's, they have the capability of intercepting, you know, God himself. So the first time I go to the Internet, I'm 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 my my access to CNET.com is blocked and I get this wacky page. I go, what the heck is this? And it says, hey, there we're offering a new service that will allow advertising by selected advertisers and websites to target you and and find you know yeah. serve you ads that are more specific blah 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 so i mean it's i got a big bullseye poss- pointed on my forehead that's what they mean entirely possible for them to make yeah. it an opt in right. where you know well and i love the idea they could say we'll cut 5 bucks off your bill every month they're going to make 100 bucks but they'll and, you know give me some and i guarantee you a lot of people would say heck yeah, yeah i don't care say about it. privacy i care about my my wallet and right. so you know, I don't mind that, you know, I, I, I mean, I and, be- and we should really underscore that we are at the mercy of our ISP anyway. I mean, they see everything we do. If they, you know, the FBI put boxes in every Internet service providers uh, uh, center uh, years ago. I mean, sort of scan email. Yeah. So um, the, the, the Internet service provider has all this information, right? Yep. All right. I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to keep my blood pressure down. I'm going to get happy right now because I'm going to mention our great sponsor, Astaro Corporation, going into coming into their third year now of sponsoring security. Now I've got my Astaro Security Gateway right here. This is an amazing device, about the size of a router. Of course, built like a tank. I mean, we're talking solid steel. Inside here, you get a full security system, the ultimate UTM, Unified Threat Management System. You've got three kind of antiviruses in here, two for the web. And uh, one for, uh, actually, is it two for, yeah, two for the web and one for your email. You've got, of course, a great firewall. You've got uh, intrusion detection. You know, all of the security you'd expect. It also scales really well. I mean, you can get one box, but you can go up to 10 boxes without additional load balancing. So as your corporation gets bigger, you're, uh, you, you never lose your security. But this also does some stuff for convenience that's really amazing. Like true SSL VPN makes it so easy for your... Uh, your 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 employees, your seats to use it. I ha- how do IT people call their uh, their uh, their customers seats? Yeah, you seat your users. I guess we'll call it. Uh, they also have built-in uh, email uh, encryption and decryption using OpenPGP and SMI. This is the best in breed in open source and commercial software. It's all in one box and it's automatically updated with the amazing Astaro up to date. I want you to try it in your business right now. Get a demo unit. All you have to do is go to astaro.com or better yet, call 877, the number four Astaro. That's 877-427-8276 and say, hey, Leo said I could get one of these units in my business. I want to try it out uh, today. I'm telling you, these are great. If you're a Cisco PIC uh, user... You know, they phase those out. You get a special deal from a star on they, they're, they're doing a little recycling program right now. 877, the number four, 
A-S-T-A-R-O, Astaro Security Gateways. They also have one for the web. You can check them out on their webpage, astaro.com. Steve, thank you so much. What a great show. What a lot of fun. Fun. I mean, fun in the sense that we get to really understand, as usual on this program, a very deep uh, and a difficult topic. You've done a great job of explaining it and uh, raising our awareness about it, too. I just it's it's horrific what these guys have done. Um, and, you and know, I don't think there's any on. there's no mainstream media outlet anywhere that can explain how this works. And in, in this is where we're really, I think, increasingly in a situation where technology is outpaced the general public's ability to understand what's being done to them. And I think we're doing a very important job getting the word out. Now, all the geeks who are listening who understand this, now you need to figure out a way to explain it to your friends and family and to stand up to your internet service providers and let them know this is not something we want. Yeah, the good news is there does seem to be a lot of outrage that this is causing. Yeah. And it's certainly causing the ISPs to back off and, and yeah. you know, rethink that this is, uh, oh, look, it's free money. Uh, no. Right. It isn't free money. We're going to get the money out of them and one way or the other. Make them, make them let us have the choice, I guess, is the idea. Hey, if you want 16 kilobit versions of this show, I know some people say, oh, it's, uh, you know, we, the audio quality is good, but it's, uh, you know, it's big. I can't, I'm on, on dial-up. We have listeners all over the world, many of whom uh, don't have the high speed uh, that uh, you might want for the large version. We do have a small version. It's available at Steve's site, grc.com. You can go there and download that. He also has transcripts. And I think on a show like this, it's very helpful to be able to read along as Steve's talking. Uh, you could find uh, the transcripts, the 16 kilobit version, complete show notes, uh, and of course, spin rights, Steve's uh, bread and butter, his the ultimate disk recovery um, and maintenance utility. Uh, it's all at grc.com and Wismo too. Is it? How would you find Wismo? You just go to the front page there, Steve. Is that? Yeah, we um, uh, GRC has now a really nice site-wide menu. You may remember that does not use any scripting, and so under not even sure where it is now, but it's right there under the top level menu down under freeware and utilities is Wismo. And that'll get you there. And I'll remind people who are inspired to send in a question or write for next week's Q and a, uh, by all means, please do uh, grc.com slash feedback. And uh, I will read your stuff and we'll do 12 questions next week. That'll be, that'll be a lot of fun. And that way we get a little more variety and we spend a lot of time with form and we're not done with this topic. I think. Nope, I think, well, it's, it's clearly people are passionate enough. I think it'll be fun to, to talk about, you know, to, to talk with a form uh, world insider who's been, I mean, who is rapidly anti-form. Uh, oh, we're going to do that fun. in two weeks. Good. All right, Steve Gibson, thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. Uh, a, little, a little side note, you can also watch us do this show live if you're so inclined. We record on Tuesdays. At 11 a.m. Pacific, that's 2 p.m. Eastern Time, or 1800 UTC, at twitlive.tv. And everybody was saying, Steve, in the chat room, uh, as as you were talking, they loved watching you because you gesticulate with your hands. They said it's actually easier to understand, Steve, because you can see his thought process. You can see how he's working, and uh, and, and they really enjoyed it. So I thank you for allowing us to do the video. I think it's really great. They want to well, know if you're Italian. We figured out uh, there's some Italian in there. Gibsoni. Yeah. Uh, we uh, we figured out a way to uh, do video and audio both yeah. over separate Skype channels. And, and the so audio quality is great. We're back to our usual audio quality. I think that's really what's cool. most important. Yeah, because most people listen to it in audio. But you know, there 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 around three thousand people who are watching and enjoying your performance. Your your bravissima performance every Tuesday on twitlive.tv. 
TV. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Leo. Security now.